0: Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. I'm glad to have you with us. We are back after a slightly elongated break, and it's a good thing that nothing has been happening in the world. Nothing at all. (laughs) What a time to go on vacation.
1: (laughs) What a time to go on vacation. What a time to be alive.
0: Well, I mean, I don't actually wasn't all vacation. RJ has moved across the country and vacation within the Corona times is just a very different story as we know. But, uh, we've got a lot to jump into today. Um, but first what's going on? How are you doing guys? Check in pulse taking.
1: I mean, we went on air quotes vacation to rural Arkansas and it was just terrifying. Um, not because of coronavirus or because of systemic racism but just because like sometimes country folk are terrifying um and they were like in our bedroom alone. There were like six different ways to die. There was like a saw over the bed. There were two guns behind <laughs> cases. I was like, what if we, anyway, so we left four days early and we're home now. And I, for all of our many, many country folk listeners of, I'm sure we have a lot. Um, I just want to say I'm allowed to say that because I am from Mississippi and come from country folk and am usually comfortable in the country, but I can't sleep with a saw over my bad so it was a great vacation rj
2: uh we are firmly entrenched in day-to-day living right now and have (laughs) been for the last two weeks or so because we you know packed up the house cleaned the house drove 1,300 miles, oh uh, re- received our boxes two days ago. Our, our new house, which is lovely, the new rectory in Florida is just in shambles because uh, we're kind of one-third of the way unpacked. And I'm working, my wife is working, the three-year-old is driving us crazy. So it's, it is funny. Like People email thing, asking us questions about something that's happening next week. And we're just like, how how can we possibly think about next week? Like I can't even yeah. think about tomorrow, you know. Mm. So it's really good to be here. I'm so happy we're uh, we're we're sort of finally here after this strange kind of season where I was kind of in Houston and kind of in Florida and then in Houston and now it. but it's I'm a little out of my head so today will be uh, today will be interesting Mm. Um, it's been uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks
0: we talked about this at the beginning of the pandemic but uh, just as social ties kind of are put on hold for so long, you know, schools you go to, you know, teams you play on, churches you attend, it becomes easier and easier for folks to um, envision a transition, I think, uh, mm. just because you're not as tied down. And yet, the uh, when you, because I, I just talking about people in my own sphere, I think that when you think of, oh, we can always pick up and move to so-and-so, you don't imagine that, well, you know, they're going to have Covid things in place too, you know. It's
1: so true. Those parks
0: aren't going to be open either, yeah. so you're going to go there and still have to wear. But you, you envision in your mind, at least I do, is like, well, I can move to such and such a place, hundred
1: percent,
0: and I'm going to be free from this.
1: There's like this part of my brain, Dave. I totally get what you're saying, where I want to be like, does Mars have Covid? Like, can people go to Mars right now? Like, it's just like
0: someone told me recently they bought a three dollar plane ticket to England. Uh, oh I mean, my, you just, no God. you Just pay the tax and stuff because it's all this stuff is already booked and they just need someone yeah. on those bodies i guess and uh, of course you know it's all highly contingent on the fact of whether they even allow people in so here we are super upbeat at uh, the opening oh to my gosh yes this episode it. <laughs> but i think that's that's honest to where we are uh, I, I feel that way we're
1: naming it and claiming it guys
0: uh, to, to begin quote-unquote summer after what has felt like a summer vacation mm-hmm. for those of us with children at least um
2: yet without Spring any of break the, never and, and, and not and, and not not really in the positive sense like the summer vacation where you're both working full time and the kids are home and you're not quite sure what to do and you just can't wait for school to start you know the summer vacation in that sense well,
0: just six more weeks
2: just, yeah yeah
0: well one positive i think yeah, Dave, for at least us. in our situation is that uh we had father's day recently and and you mm-hmm. know um, Oh, yeah, that
2: happened, didn't it?
0: (laughs) We were joking, Sarah and I were joking the other day that our identity as uh, writers or Mm -hmm. um, for her uh, as priests, clergy, they've all sort of vanished um, in the last, and there's this existential kind of, who am I? Um, And the truth is, for me, at least these last... Three months, yes, I've been continuing on with mockingbird responsibilities and some limited things at the church, but really I've been a dad, and yeah. all of since all the travel got cancelled, which is a which is a sadness in a lot of ways, but it also means I've been more present with my kids than I've ever been, and to be a, a dad and to be present has actually been there's been moments of supreme joy amidst the aggravation. Um, and today we're going to start off by reading a wonderful piece that uh, Sam Bush wrote for Mockingbird about fathers and Father's Day. It's called "God of Our Lonely Fathers," and he begins by saying by referencing stand-up comedian John Mullaney, who had a brilliant opening monologue on Saturday Night Live recently, in which he dove headfirst into the modern plights of fatherhood. Mulaney's technique, unlike Emily Dickinson, is to tell the truth so bluntly that you really just have to laugh at the fact that someone had the gall to be so direct. My dad has no friends, he says, and your dad has no friends. And if you think your dad has friends, you're wrong. Your mom has friends, and they have husbands. Those are not your dad's friends. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. But based on the audience's reaction, he's clearly on to something. Uh, Why do dads not have friends? And then Mulaney says, because dads want to be alone. In an age when career often becomes a man's first love. It's hard to make friends when you're an adult male. As someone who is an adult male, I have to agree with him, writes Sam Bush. One theory as to why fathers seek seclusion is that they are desperate for any amount of respite from external pressures. Everyone is under pressure today, and the modern father is no exception. He is under pressure to be a loving example for his young children, despite having deep issues with anger, for example. He is under financial pressure as the rising cost of living continues to outpace inflation, and he is under pressure to not become like his own father." although that is clearly happening already if you just ask his wife. Well, on top of that, he is under cross pressures to be both strong and vulnerable, confident and humble, funny and serious, a successful provider but then always available at home. So good luck with getting to be honest with you about the pressures he is under. Nietzsche once said, Shared joys make a friend, not shared sufferings. And if that's true, then a friend will be hard to find when you need someone to take the pressure off. Um, Nietzsche. Nietzsche. He Always. was a happy guy. Always with the, with the funny Nietzsche, funny tell jokes. us about friendship.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, thank you.
0: Well, Sarah, you've, actually, you've written about this. I've written about this. RJ, yeah. you just uh, experienced this, I you suppose. You just embody it and we write about you. <laughs> um, where where See, did right it, this me. strike you? I know we've all had a lot of time to uh, reevaluate family roles and things like that in this pandemic.
1: I mean, I think what I'm actually thinking of, which is funny, is the small group we have at church because, like, we started immediately when this happened. I was like, women are going to need support. They're home with their kids. They're homeschooling. They're cooking. They're working. And so we started this small group. and But we we probably been doing it for six weeks before I was like, so these women are married to people. (laughs) they may need some of this too. You know, um, none of them have asked for it, but they might want it. Mm. And um, so we started that and it's been like, it's so funny. Like it's been uh, really well attended, which we had no idea how many young dads were going to show up for this. They all want to be there. Um, and I think that was, I don't know. I mean, I do think about this a lot, Dave, and I think that was part of the reason I pushed pretty hard for it and kind of pushed the women in my group to be like, tell your husband to show up for this. Because um, I, I just look at my own husband and I think friendship's really tough. I mean, didn't you write that piece? Because I think about it all the time. Several years ago about, and, and it gets referenced, Sam references it here, but because you enter your thirties and your forties and it's such a competitive time career wise that the peers that really could be friends for you. And if you think ministry is an exception to this friends, it is not. Um, Really, really, are co- you can see his competition, and yeah. then there's no real sharing and vulnerability. I mean, I think we have exceptions to that in our life. For him to have somebody to call, especially when there's a professional thing he's trying to figure out, is is a big deal. A guy his age, because I I think that's when it gets really dark. Is when it's so competitive that they feel like they can't even reach out and say, "Hey, I'm struggling with this." Mm. Um, but and the other, I guess the other thing I I want to say is. And I've just noticed this in, in my husband, you know, who's, who's, as a lot of people have a complication, relation complicated relationship with his father and his father's dead now. And he's really done a pretty good job of finding men in his life who would have been, who are his dad's age, mm. who he is friends with and who he calls, um, And I think that's a really invaluable thing that you can kind of surround yourself with at some point. Um, And I want to say, if you're listening to this and you're a guy and you're like, oh my God, I haven't done any of that. I don't have any of that. Um, I mean, this has been only in the past few years. Like, it's totally a thing that you can kind of look up and be like, hey, I need more male support in my life. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm not a man, RJ. Tell us, how lonely are you?
2: I think Nietzsche was wrong. I I think there is something about shared joys that creates friendship, but actually, I don't want to say it's more shared sufferings, but it's definitely equal part shared sufferings. And I think one of the things that makes it tough for men to be friends is that for whatever reason, men, this is a gross generalization, but I feel like men have a more difficult time sharing their sufferings and their difficulties with each other than women do, right? And mm-hmm. brene Brown's been big on this, that, that vulnerability creates intimacy and men just aren't, great at that. Uh, it's it's tough to talk about things that aren't going well at work, that aren't going well in your parenting, aren't going well in your marriage.
1: I would um, also say, but like <clears throat> men are not encouraged to do it.
2: No, they're not. Yeah. The quote that she often cites, and we, we said this before, but not for a while, was the man who came and said, why do you, to Brown? why don't you write about men? And she was like, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I have, you know, a wife and two daughters and they, and this is harsh, but this is what he said. They would rather me die on my high horse than fall off of it.
0: Yes. And she was like,
2: whoa. And that's when yeah. she started to look into male vul- vulnerability. Yeah. So, and I, I sense that challenge for myself, that it takes a long time to know another guy and be able to talk about what's actually going on in your life in a real way. Um, but if I don't, if I'm not, if there's a reason for me to see them face to face regularly, um, then it's, it's sometimes tough to just like pick up the phone or shoot a text or an email or Whatever, so I don't know, and I think I don't think I'm alone in that. No, being a guy no. having friends like that. So, no. um, but I do actually feel blessed to have some very close friends that I can tell the truth to. They tell me the truth, and but I feel like that's also somewhat unusual. The so, uh, that's my take on friendship.
0: No, that's it is a big a, a big big issue for me and sort of what, what I see in front of me. And I see the the uh, phrase that they call it is men in their 30s and 40s are sad clowns a lot of times. Oh. And <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> sad clown syndrome <laughs> is men that are sort of just keeping it all together and trying to keep it bottled up and for, don't, yeah. don't feel the permission or don't, aren't maybe in touch with their emotions or just, you know, th- there's all sorts of factors that go into it. One of the other things I say in that piece is that people, you're not only in competition with f- people, but folks from your past, and you're, if you've come from a similar background and maybe you're close at one time, they represent a path you could have gone down. They uh, a yeah. life you could have lived, and in that yeah. sense, they work as a condemnation, as the law to you. And that's not always the case, but I've noticed that men often circle back to those friendships, the people that knew me before I was so and so, in in um, in later in life. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And um, but you know, I I my. I've had a revolution in this particular avenue because people in ministry, I think, it, you get put, um, you sit set apart, even if you don't want to, even if they know you're, as, you know, just a normal person. There's still a little sense of, oh, we, you know, don't curse around that guy, or he's yeah. he's the Jesus guy. I, I think I joked in that, like I remember w- overhearing a friend said, I like Dave. He's for a Jesus guy. He's so normal, or something like that, and um, I think that there's. Uh, it's, it's not always easy to be friends with the people, especially in your church, but you can really love them and want to be their friend. But, uh, you know, for me, it's been this exercise group that I've become a part of. And you do something together and you hang out. And you know what? One of the reasons why it works is because none of us really know what each other do for a That's living. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah. That's I mean, good. There's, there, you, you adopt new names. It's this fellowship. You, you talk about serious things that are going on in your life, but you do it Dave, outside. Dave, you adopt new names? Well, code names. It's called F3. And I, I, you know, I...
1: Dave, can you tell us your name? Or is this like the Masons?
0: No, my name is Soapbox i I'm
2: that's perfect. Creature. That is perfect. Oh my and God. And
0: we so found good. the name of this episode. Oh, I oh, hardly God. I
2: that's so good.
0: Yeah. soapbox. And, um, so it's been, it's been a great thing to be friends with all these guys that are in a similar stage of life. And I, and we're, there's none of this sort of competitive, uh, and what was funny is we had a social gathering with our wives and, and all the wives were so, disoriented because it was the first time in in all of these women's like married lives. It was the, it was like the first time that they were going to a thing. They were all, their husbands were friends rather than vice versa. And that's quite a comment in and of itself, but there's a safety in it. And, and it's the sad clown thing. It really um, has, has helped me personally, but I I love how Sam circles back to what Mulaney's great joke about Jesus he oh, says yeah. uh, you know the one success story of a grown man having friends is that that's the real miracle of Jesus. He was a 33-year-old man and had 12 best friends. Actually it's more like 11. And they were not his wife's friends' husbands. And he didn't meet them a long time ago in school. He met them in his 30s. Remember <laughs> remember when your dad went fishing that one time? Well these guys
2: yeah. went fishing every day.
0: Um, that's so good. I tonight. love it. You know,
2: related to Of course, he wasn't married and didn't have kids. So give me a break, Jesus. <laughs> Easy for you to have. No demands on your time, just walking around being supported by these wealthy women, doing whatever you want to do. Once you know. again,
0: I'm not Jesus. What I need yeah, right. I need Jesus.
2: I just want to say one thing. You know, I I I um long time listeners will know uh, you know, I, I have mixed emotions about my own father, but I'll say this is one area where I really feel like he got it right. You know, he had um two very, you know, three or actually two very close Dutch friends, two very close American friends, and he didn't see them all the time, but he went out of his way to go see them when he was traveling or That's to make awesome. time for them or to go on trips with them. And I did see, and it wasn't all the time, um, but I saw him have close friendships in his life. And, and those men have now become friends to me and my brothers, you know, after my father's passing a little over a year ago. Um, and so... Thanks, Dad. That. He, he yeah. modeled that well.
0: I think it's also harder for men that don't golf, because I don't golf, and yeah. that seems to be a way that they that they take care of that need. But whatever you think, um, these are real issues, actually. Uh, there's a poll that the Associated Press reported on this past week that Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years. And this is from a survey out of the University of Chicago in late May, so it's... Post-pandemic, but uh, pre-George Floyd, it finds that just 14% of American adults, it found that just 14% of American adults say they're very happy, down from 31% who said the same in 2008. Who's very happy? That's a lot. (laughs) But in 2018, (laughs) 31% of people said that. Wow. That year, 23% said they'd often or sometimes felt isolated. And now 50% say that now that's, oh, yeah. that's, um, compared with surveys. This is interesting compared with surveys conducted after J- JFK's assassination in 1963. And after the September 11th terrorist attacks, Americans are less likely to report some types of emotional and psychological stress reactions, uh, following COVID fewer report smoking more than usual, crying or feeling dazed, uh, now than they did after those two previous tragedies though more report having lost their temper or wanting to get drunk bleak bleak uh any comments on that (laughs) thanks a lot for sharing
1: dave i just don't think it's i mean it's it's not like a huge surprise right like it's everyone is so in their head right now um and I and of course we're I think we'll talk a bit about this, but especially now with the the cultural shift we're having around race conversations in this country, like everyone's even more in their head right now, I mean, I would be interested actually to see what that statistic would look like now, um just when you thought it was as bad as it could get um. <laughs> just <laughs> so, when you
2: thought your anthropology was low enough
1: yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 none of this is surprising to me. It's super, super sad. It's intensely sad. I mean, I think I said to you guys in one of our text threads that I, what I'm finding about this time period and you know, the pandemic for sure. Um, and then for sure for me, the stuff around race that we're coming to terms with is that I really want to be in church yeah. mm. and I can't be. And that's very hard. And even when I can be, it won't feel the same. And that's really hard for me to kind of wrap my brain around. Um, And super, super sad. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I'm, I'm struggling. So I, I, am I'm imagining other people are too. Yeah. Although this is a great time to plug antidepressants and
0: body medications. This episode <laughs> brought to you, brought to by, you by. by Lexapro. By yeah. Lexapro, <laughs> Sarah loves it.
1: Yeah, I mean, like
2: this is a good moment. You can. That's still an option, folks. You know. I don't know. I just don't. I don't even know how I feel. Honestly, yeah. I'm so I'm just yeah. honestly trying Actually, not to think about it. it. Yeah, I just don't. I am I'm, I'm one. I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other and spoken like a dad. So, <laughs> sometimes, I mean. sometimes there are times when it's not. Um, I guess I would have never said this before because I'm such a feeler. But sometimes there are times it's not super helpful to dwell on how you feel. Yeah, it's just like you know to to just be mindful. To, be, to that's mindfulness a little bit, right? It's like okay, I am yes. who I am. I I am where where I am. And I just, uh, I need to put one foot in front of the other and know that, uh, you know, today is not going to be like tomorrow or the day after. And and that's very much where Jamie and I am right now. So if someone came to me right now and asked me if I was very happy, I definitely would not respond in the affirmative, nor am right. I very sad. I'm sure. just, I don't even know where I am. Yeah. What day is it? What's today? Yeah. <laughs> where, where am I? Well, that, that um, but I'm, yeah.
0: that's almost <laughs> in keeping with what the findings say is that people feel... Like, uh, or some people probably feel disoriented, numb, or anesthetized. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I, I, I wonder, um, Sarah. It feels like the only word I've been able to find to describe aspects of this, because we've, we've talked at great length about some of the blessings, but there's a curse uh, to this past three months in that one of the main places we desperately need to be is the one place we can't be. And yeah. so you're hearing nothing but all sorts of, uh, you're soaked in media all day with various narratives and people getting more and more pushed to one side or the other. And uh, the one place where you might go and be um, where people might kneel together and hear, have perspective shifted towards the eternal and towards reconciliation and towards God's grace in the midst of it is the one place they can't go. And I hear from more and more people that, you know, it's great that we've done these online services, but people are zoomed out. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like I talked to another young uh, person the other day. It's like, I feel guilty. I haven't watched or churched in in two months. And it's not because they don't want to, but it's because they've been on the computer all week. And Sunday feels more holy without that, without the computer being open. And so, but as a result, you're still getting this sort of stream of of voices and input, but never any kind of, let's just say it, never any grace. You know, um,
1: I, I just keep wondering, like, when I would see all this really powerful footage of people kneeling um, to commemorate George Floyd and um, Breonna Taylor and all these people who have who've been senselessly murdered. I just kept thinking, what would it feel like to be in church kneeling right now? You know, and that that. um. I'm like sick of I'm sick of acting like online churches like that I'm thankful for it, right I feel bad saying that, but I'm sick of it, like I'm sick of online church, no, she says is the priest's wife and the priest, but I'm just like there's no tangible there. Do you know what i mean yeah. it's better
2: it's It's better than the alternative. I guess, you know, I just is can't it? imagine not having any, <laughs> yes, not having any connection to anybody. I know, and just, I, know I I will say, those are the times during it's the week just, when I do feel uh, the most joyful, honestly, is yeah. like when I'm... Um, you know, teaching. Uh, we have a Sunday forum. You know, teaching Sunday school to, to like fifty adults yeah. on Sunday, or yeah. doing a little um, small group, or there is something still the
1: small group, sure. But it's just I don't know. I'm 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 really struggling. Like I'm I, and it's not even like a priestly thing because I just don't. You know, I'm not the priest that's like craving being behind the altar. Although you guys are out there and good for you. I'm I'm just like for me i actually just want to be in a sanctuary on my knees like that would be like very like i need that right now and i don't have it because
0: because the impulse to want to repent is is a wonderful impulse in every scenario that's what martin luther says that 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 that, that he's paraphrasing paul and jesus is that the whole life of the believer should be one of repentance yeah and yet to repent where there's no absolution yeah, um, or mm. no hope for absolution. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, is a sad and um, possibly. Dis- almost a uh, nihilistic uh, yeah. thing. And, it, it, and, it, and that's what... It's like what to what end? I was... Yeah. My friend, he went to a Christian protest in New York that was run by a bunch of uh, black Pentecostal preachers. And uh-huh. they went to Brooklyn to do this. And they were excited about it because the protests that they'd been a part of were nothing but anger and rage and vindictiveness. And they wanted to see what a Christian one would feel like. And so they went and they got in the wrong line. <laughs> and it was a bunch of white kids from Connecticut, you know, screaming to kill all policeman and um and they're like well i gotta we gotta get out of here so then they finally but then they finally found because they, they they thought to themselves this clearly isn't um constructive and right. there's a there's a you know maybe there's a importance to express rage and whatnot but this seems to course, be yeah not what we're calm down connecticut Connecticut. Yeah. and th- hey so hey. then <laughs> he went then they found the christian one and it was a bunch of these uh, pentecostal pastors latino and uh and black, and they were protesting and they were on their knees, but they were also pointing to Jesus and the God Mm. who reconciles. And he said, the Mm. difference in tone and hope that you walk away from one versus the other. And there was no... Stoicism about the second one. There was no band aid of now we're forgiven, let's all just go back Mm -hmm. to normal. It was much more Mm -hmm. we were lamenting, but we're Mm -hmm. lamenting God can hear us. And not only that, God moves with grace and mercy towards Mm -hmm. people, repentant sinners. And I thought, and he was just, he thought. He, he he's like, and what was what was interesting was that the, um, it was the people who'd been done against, you know, the culture of the the black culture that has been so mistreated, that was yeah. actually uh, trying to move, not just uh, have a repentance with nowhere to go, and so I thought yeah. that was that was telling to me. I don't know if there's
1: it's, Dave. It reminds me so much. I mean, I've talked about this on here before, but when I was in hospital chaplaincy, which just involved going into random rooms constantly all day. It just reminds me of how big a difference immediately there was between rooms of believers and rooms that weren't believers like it, because there's a death happening. Right. And so in, in our country, in so many ways, there's actual death happening, but then there's like the death of the way we've always done things and the death of normalcy and, and you know, what is a different way. And, and it just reminds me of like, that when I would walk into a hospital room where people were critically ill and dying, if they believed in Jesus, and I don't even want to say it like that, I would say if they believe that Jesus loved them, mm. there was hope mm. in that room, you know, yeah. it just, it, it really reminds me of that.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. And it was just, it was interesting in this situation, what he was saying was that all of the white kids were lecturing the black pastors about how they shouldn't yeah. be talking, yeah. even remotely invoking forgiveness. And we're going to get yeah. even closer to that. But before we do, Sarah, you said a very interesting thing that there's a lot of death going on, not just physical death, but the death of, the, of what was normal. And in fact, in The Atlantic, writing in The Atlantic, uh, Ekamini Uwan, I hope I'm saying that right, she is a theologian who um, wrote something for The Atlantic called There's No Going Back to Normal. This is what she said. She said, I see signs that parts of society are beginning to look more to the future and less to reclaiming an old way of life. In thinking about the tension between the past, the present, and the future, I have come to believe that the only way to move forward is to grieve the life we once knew, and to Mm. shift our mindsets to radical acceptance of our present reality in order to create a new normal that is better than our pre-pandemic life. The term radical acceptance, she writes, was coined by the psychologist Marsha Linehan, Radical acceptance, Linehan wrote, is an act without discrimination. One does not choose what parts of reality to accept and parts to reject. Then she writes something that hits extremely close to home. She says, I'm a public theologian who frequently speaks at conferences, universities, and churches. In talking with a friend recently about my work, I found myself painstakingly catching my words and rearranging them from present to past tense. The past tense has become a constant companion in the present moment, as every facet of my life has changed due to the pandemic. Mass gatherings such as conferences, my primary source of income, she says, are foreclosed until social distancing measures are lifted. Some scientists project that may not happen until 2022, and that's my reality. Yet my Christian faith teaches me that I am not what I produce. I am valuable because I am a human being endowed by God with intrinsic dignity and worth. I have found solace in that truth. My faith teaches me that my value is not contingent on my circumstances. Radical acceptance, which can be practiced regardless of one's faith or worldview, is a complementary concept. It teaches me to release what I cannot control so that I can focus on what I can change. It's sort of the serenity prayer. Um, Then she finally says, radical acceptance of this reality... Is, and she's a woman of color, so she's, she's referring to uh, the r- racist, uh, the sort of post-George uh, Floyd uh, outrage as well. She says, radical acceptance of this reality is not to be confused with approval of it. Linehan explains hmm. it thusly. Radical acceptance doesn't mean you don't try to change things, but you can't change anything if you don't accept it. Because if you don't accept it, you'll try to change something else that you think is reality. I thought that was perceptive. I love that.
1: Well, and I think that radical acceptance and a low anthropology really go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, for me, this is a lot of this has been frustrating. I'll just be honest because, um, because I did, you know, I'm a student of the South. I mean, I, I literally got a degree in Southern studies. It's still very, a very interesting subject matter to me. And, um, there, there have been moments where people are like, I can't believe, you know, I can't believe where, you know, white female fragility is a thing. And like, they were talking about that at almost 20 years ago in an undergraduate class. Um, and I, you know, and, and also I think just the thing that drives me crazy is people are like, I can't believe that black people are being treated this way. And I'm like, really? Like, I don't have, there's this part of me that's like, you know, I mean, what did I just read recently that the last, Con- child of a Confederate uh, soldier just died like this past year yeah. um, oh, in the past six months or something. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. This awful stuff wasn't that long ago. And I think this idea of a radical acceptance of history and a radical acceptance of, I don't know. I mean, I say, I've said this probably a lot, but I get so sick of people being surprised by sin. I get so sick of it because, and that's not an acceptance of sin on some level. It's not, it's not saying things aren't, you know, aren't going to change and that God, well, this is what I think. I think that often when we say that we're like, well, what are we going to do to fix it? And I'm like, I actually think the question is, what is God going to do to fix it? And how are we going to trust God in that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, but, but you have to really I mean, I have so many sweet friends from seminary who will say to me, I really like the stuff you write, but I really struggle with the low anthropology thing. And I'm like, how are you this progressive and you don't also understand a low anthropology? Like if you if you're so hardened towards the way that the world works, how do you not see the innate fallenness and sinfulness of humanity in that? um mm. and perhaps the answer is because none of us want to see it in ourselves yeah, but
0: it's a rare breed i think the progressive side of the equation has often been married to a, a more optimistic view of what human beings are capable of and uh and and then they're sad all the time and <laughs> they're sad all the time right it's really yeah, frustrating
1: to progress. me cuz yeah cuz it's like you know until we until we plant our feet at the foot of the cross mm. I, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. I don't know. And so these people are my friends and I love them so much, but I'm like, you would not be so angry all the time if you didn't expect people to be anything other than
2: people. Mm. Well, Sarah, to, th- to that point, when we were, <clears throat> when we were driving, um, you know, from Texas to Florida, we were listening to some podcasts and one of them was an amazing invisibility episode. Really, it was about a lot of things, but it was really about trust and And they talked to one academic who had worked with a particular culture. I can't remember where it was. I want to say somewhere in, is it Albania? Anyway, Mm -hmm. but in this culture, there was no concept of trust. People did not trust one another. Um, And he was like, how can that be? How can you have a society? How can you have social norms? How can you do anything if you don't trust each other? And he told this story about this man and this um, older man and younger man who got into a conflict because it had something to do with the older man's daughter, and 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 there was some misunderstanding, and they both thought they were manipulate, being manipulated, and they, they had a total falling out. And this academic then went away back to England to do his work and came back a year later, and they were back to being best friends. And he's like, how is this possible? He's like, well, when you don't expect anyone to be trustworthy, it creates space for... Um, continued friendships even when there's no resolution, which oh, was interesting. It was so it was like it was a saying. very much a low, a low the, the radical low anthropology of this particular culture allowed people to continue to be in community with one another even if they had unresolved conflicts. That is wild. It was wild. So I yeah. can't remember the name of the episode, but um, that was as a random thought. I mean, w- no, with I regard love to that. This, with regard to this article, um. um I just don't know how to think about this, right? I feel like I've lived through so many things now mm. where it's like, we're never getting back to normal. After 9-11, we're never getting back to normal. After the financial meltdown, we're never getting back to normal. And then we kind of do, mm-hmm. and and I don't, or maybe we don't. I, maybe it's just right. we incorporate whatever happened into our new normal and whatever, it, it sort of feels like normal, even though if we think about it, it's not. So I don't know. And then there's also, there's things I can control, very much serenity prayer. There's certain things I can control and there's things I can't. Sure. Right? Like I can't, I can't control um, systemic racism on a national level, right? (laughs) I can, I can do my own little part of my own little place, but things I can control is like, what is church going to, what's church going to look like? Yeah. And I just don't even know what the answer to that question is. And it's difficult to think about the future and to, Plan and to not know, are we going to be back to normal in six months, or is it going to be three years? Right, and who knows? And, right. and trying to operate in the midst of this uncertainty is—it's um, really challenging. And I'm sure Josh and Paul are going through yeah. the same things. Like, how do we think about the future? How do we lead people? How do we? How do we? Um, uh, try to be, how do we evangelize? Yeah. How do, how do we welcome new people? How do we incorporate new people? How do we do Christian education? How do we do Sunday school for children? All this sort of stuff. Not to mention, how do I make friends <laughs> now that we're <laughs> in a new place? I mean, that's I on the back of the first
1: page, right? Like, yeah. that's.
2: Like... <laughs> um, so it's this, <laughs> that's such a weird thing. Because, like I said, I've, you know, I was in, I moved into New York the weekend after 9 11, and I remember mm. the memorial set up in the Union Square subway station. Were you there, Sarah? With all no. those votive candles and no. pictures, and Mm-mm. and that just felt like something you'd never seen before. And then suddenly, a year later, they were gone. Yeah, yeah. you I mean, know. And it's like we're back to normal. So what? So I, I'm not sure to think about that.
0: I think people only change. What's the AA thing? They only change when the pain of continuing is 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 more than the pain of of not changing. Right. And that, that's, yes. That's. Um, I think, but I also see which feels like where we are. As we're a country. in a
2: strange. That feels like where we are. Yes. But, yeah. but who knows? It, it could ask it could me a year be,
0: because you know one of my refrains throughout this entire thing is that we really should. The the prediction thing is just nothing but anxiety, and we we don't yeah. we don't we we're not God. We cannot predict the future and all of this is really not worth the paper it's printed on and if you go back
1: collectively
0: if you go back to NPR experts talking in March someone my friend was listening to a to a to a they replayed something from March and it's like oh it's gonna be a month and we'll just you know just wear your mask and we'll be fine and a month will be all great and and this is a you know someone who's touted as an authority and no one knows what they're talking about but the the thing like for for us here see In Charlottesville, I feel like we've got a slightly different perspective because we had... Essentially, race riots here in August of 2017, and there was there in a sense we've been living in the wake, and a lot we've been doing a lot of uh, racial reconciliation work, and there's been but what I've also seen, someone showed a picture of the people that were marching, the clergy that were marching in Charlottesville two days after this terrible thing that happened, and Heather Heyer was killed, and not one of them still lives in Charlottesville. Uh, two years later, Whoa. because they burnt out, and yeah. uh, to to um, the yeah. the the sprint, as someone says, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And if huh. uh, that you will get tired, and just need to sort of have a have a glass of wine or something. And that is what I, and I do think, um, Jonathan Haidt was talking about how things, had the religious wars stopped in the 17th century in, in, in Europe, and he said, his sense was not that they came to some kind of resolution, it's just that people got exhausted of living that way. And yeah. the, the, the yeah. pain of, and it, it could be that we're, we're there. I, in, in a lot of this, the other th- thing that's been going through my head is that clearly no one watches the show Atlanta uh donald glover's mm. show about because mm-hmm. it has everything a lot he predicted a lot of this he talks he shows exactly um a lot of what we're living through in fact the episode juneteenth everyone was saying oh i never heard of juneteenth let's let's mm-hmm. celebrate just make it a national holiday that'd be great but watch that episode because mm-hmm. it has it, it's skewers uh Kind of white smugness about Juneteenth and the immediate co-opting of a of a of a minority uh, viewpoint in order to basically score points, and it was Fell close at the gap. What
2: it's so close at the gap. It's like, okay, very no. cynicism-inducing. All the younger people are like, what's the gap? <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Made
0: well, okay? Fall ladies.
2: into the gap. Donald Glover is a genius. Yes, but let's get
0: yes. to this next uh, piece, which reminds me, frankly, of something Sarah, you had written. Um, we'll tread gingerly through it. This is our friend Chad Bird wrote a piece about hashtag preaching and whack a worship and he was he, he's trying to make a case for um, preaching according to uh, in a church according to assigned passages in a lectionary rather than according to current events and he's not he has to give a lot of caveats to say this is not what I'm I'm sa- not saying you never talk about Uh, what's going on, but I am saying, he says, this is what he writes, he says, like many people, I spend much more than five minutes per day on social media. I read posts from my friends on the political left and the political right. I watch interviews, view pictures from peaceful protests and violent riots. I also listen to podcasts that address current ethical, political, and societal issues. Truth be told, come Sunday morning, I feel emotionally beat up and mentally worn down by all of it, and I seriously doubt I am alone. If my pastor preaches on the feeding of the 5,000 or Jesus walking on water and never saddles these verses and spurs them into hot-button issues territory, then I, for one, breathe a hallelujah sigh of relief. For at least an hour, I am yanked out of this week's tumultuous raging into God-soaked liturgy, hymns, reading, and homily. These gifts graft me into an eternal kingdom that transcends the vicissitudes of humanity's frail and failing crusade to remedy all its own problems." He then goes on, he says, when the regular focus of the church's life becomes issues, be those abortion, racism, politics, ecological concerns, it is a delicious temptation, this is the other caution he gives, to preach against those who are not in attendance. You know, those bad people out there doing bad things. But that is not preaching, but pandering, not to mention feeding raw meat to the monster of self-righteousness within us. When it comes to proclaiming God's judgment against sin of any kind, though, the church takes no prisoners, gives no quarters, and calls one and all to repentance. Am I saying that we should not preach against so- so-called societal evils? No, of course I'm not saying that, because all evils are societal. Sin is never not communal. Sarah, you once wrote a post about, like, if your church doesn't preach the gospel this weekend, uh, this Sunday... Uh, maybe go to another church. The, the, I haven't seen as much of that as I uh, on social media as I used to. Uh, mainly probably because people aren't preaching, <laughs> or they're doing these uh, 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 taped sermons. But where are you guys with, with with what Chad is saying here? Because it 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 fl- certainly flows against the the grain of uh, mainline sensibilities right now.
1: Well, first thing I want to say is just directly to Chad, which is is you know he's always felt like a pastor to us and our family. And I just want to say as a pastor to him, like maybe just get off social media for a few days (laughs) because I totally want to say, like, I love what he says, but I do need to say, I completely identify with where he's coming from. And I have as someone who is for been on social media for sometimes hours a day for years have been off of it now. Um, almost entirely. I probably am on it literally for five minutes. Um, and I've actually looked more at Twitter than I ever have before, just because there are a lot of clergy people my age on Twitter as we all hit. We, you know, we talked about that article where a lot, a lot of Anglican presence on Twitter and, um, and that's really bleak. Um I'm actually seeing people I was on Twitter last night and I'm seeing people I know who are colleagues who are kind of coming apart on Twitter. Um I'm seeing a lot of people who are kind of unable to tear themselves away from social media. I don't know. It it just feels like such a a heavy echo chamber. Um and I'm glad, Dave, that you haven't seen that kind of call for people, you know, if your church isn't preaching this to you, you shouldn't be at your church. I've definitely seen that. Um, and I get that. I get that. Because I, we're, at this, we're at this really interesting cultural moment. I get that. But also, like, it's hard. I mean, I you know, I'm preaching every third Sunday. For Holy Spirit, just to give, frankly, my husband and um, our assistant, Corey, a little bit of a break. And I recorded a sermon in advance, and it was in so many ways about systemic racism, which needed to be said. But then also, the COVID numbers in Houston are, well, yesterday, we keep hitting new highs. So yesterday was the most cases in Texas. Um, that we've recorded so far. So that keeps happening. It was 5,400 cases. And while people liked my sermon, I was like, I kind of wish I'd preach comfort. I don't know. Like, it's very complicated. Um, I feel like I'm just rambling, but I just want to give Chad a hug, tell him to have a cup of green tea and like chill out on the beach in Galveston, which I know he loves. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Because it's like... It's just, it's a it's a very, you know what social media feels like to me? It feels like when I was a kid and I would take my mom into these stores with terrible cheap clothing to make her spend lots of money on like teenage girl clothes and the look on her face when we'd walk in and it was bright lights and like the neon colors of the uh. 90s and music going womp, 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 womp. That's what social media feels like for me. Oh it feels like gosh. the Express in 1998, so...
0: Well I wonder if if social media isn't one of the primary places where this pain of remaining on there is going to get more than the pain of getting off because that yes. is it seems to be driving and it, you always have to remind yourself that there's a difference uh, still between you look at Twitter you look at Facebook and you're like oh my gosh everything is going to hell and then you t- turn it off and you go outside and the sun's shining and your kids are smiling and you're like well, wait a second. Wait a minute. Wait a, wait a minute. That's not the entire truth. Uh, right. It's maybe part of the truth, but it's part uh, of it. I-
1: but it's not even the majority of it. There is this life beyond that, and and I do want to say there's really valuable, beautiful, especially around um, activism stuff that happens in these social media spheres. But there's also just a lot of like angry white angst that I'm not sure is like helpful. I don't know. The cult
2: of white guilt. Yeah. So as I read this article, um, like this is a hard time to be a preacher, Yeah. you know, because I know, uh, or I'm sensitive to the fact that I'm, for certain members of my congregation, I'm not going to say enough. Mm-hmm. And for others, I'm going to say too much. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to know how to sort of quote unquote, strike the balance. And I think What I've tried to do is, number one, to be as honest as I can and Mm -hmm. transparent and sort of vulnerable, like not in a bleeding-in-the-pulpit kind of way, but not to pretend to have answers that I don't have, Um, to make sure that whatever I'm saying, I'm first and foremost saying to myself, you know, that I'm calling myself to repentance, that I'm calling myself to soul-searching, that I'm calling myself to listening, that I'm not preaching to anybody, any more that I'm preaching to myself, um, and then also these are moments I'm really thankful for the lectionary. Yeah, you know because I'm I am always going to preach the Bible. Now how I how I preach the lectionary is going to depend on kind of where our church is, where our country is, what people are thinking about. But um, you know, last week, for example, like all three of all the all the readings really were about division. And strife, mm-hmm. and so and and then to talk about um, what I ended up talking about is is you know the thing about Jesus' ministry that caused division and strife was not his uh, like moral certainty or ethical purity or ideological orthodoxy. It was his radical love and forgiveness and acceptance. Like that's like that actually is divisive. Forgiveness is divisive. And and Dave, I used that amazing tweet that you sent us. About what did it say? You know, there's something about a cult. There's something unsustainable about a culture that demands constant atonement without the possibility of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like uh, Elizabeth Brunig, which was incredible. And um, and praise God, thus far I haven't gotten any uh, angry emails or Facebook <laughs> messages. Um, but it's hard. It is hard. But I also I, I appreciate what Chad says because this is a thought I have had before. Whenever I've talked to other preachers, pastors, Christians who are like, you know, how can you not be talking about insert major issue here? And I'm like, well, I look at the Gospels, I just don't see Jesus doing that. I see everyone on earth trying to co-opt him for their own particular political cause, right? Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, like take a stand, like take a side, like are you are you with Caesar or are you with the Jews? And Jesus, is like, no, like, render to God what is God's and Caesar what is Caesar's. And the one the one time, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. The one time which always comes to mind when Jesus does seem to address a quote unquote hot button topic of the day is when he's talking about like the the tower that fell and killed all those people. Mm-hmm. Remember that when they're like, Jesus, what happened? to All the what about those people that the tower fell on? What about them? And he says you know, well, you're all sinners and you should all repent or the same thing's going to happen to you, you know? Mm-hmm. And here we are 2,000 years later, who cares? Like to them, like, oh my gosh, the tower fell. Like, this is, this is a major thing that happened in our world and we got to d- deal. And now today we're like, who? Look, what is that even about? Like, who knows what that's about? Yeah. Um, so again, not to say that we don't talk about things that matter and things that are important, but I don't see Jesus being beholden to the quote-unquote hot-button topics of his day in the way that so much of the time preachers, pastors, Christians, leaders, whatever feel like we have to be um I think there's a way to talk about these things in a way that is in tune with eternal truths um rather than sort of getting on a particular angry bandwagon um you know, and honestly, we've also in my church i i did a spent a lot of time talking about like. How, the way that the Apostle Paul deals with conflict, because you read Corinthians, you read Galatians, you read Romans, there's a lot of conflict in church, and this is a time to read Romans 14 and talk about, um, you know, welcome those who are weak in the faith, uh, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions, you know, uh, um, be, be resolved not to put a stumbling block in front of someone else, you know, let each be fully convinced in their own minds, you um, you know, is before their own maker that they stand or fall, and yet God is able to make them stand, wow. you know, through the grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul is also dealing with major conflict and yet calling people to love and non-judgment and faith in in a pretty um, way that feels relevant mm. to our particular moment. Um
1: and so different from what's, like, online. Like, so yes, different. Yes, but it's like there just, in the Bible. I know. Like but ring. even, like, Christians you know, online, like, I just keep seeing this stuff that's, like, if you don't agree with X, Y, and Z, you need you're to, canceled. Yeah. And I'm like... I mean, that's a lot for somebody to say who's a clergy person, but who I want to criticize.
2: I mean, Paul, Paul <laughs> does, gets, Paul does is, kind of try to cancel the Judaizers in Galatians, but even then, he takes the time to write them. But, <laughs> you know, I mean,
1: like, does, but like, like, what is it that Jacob Smith always says? Like, they can like they can break up with you, but you can't break up with them. <laughs> like, that's right. No, you just, can't. You know, I. I, I wish <laughs> I could quit you. I, exactly. <laughs> I we've been watching, and this will sound like. Um, like PTSD, like no one will want to watch it, and will sound crazy for watching. We've been watching *Linux Hill* on Netflix, which is a documentary about *Linux Hill hospital, hospital* in New York. And I think it started my as a subway movie. station. Yeah, it's yes, it started as a movie, and ended, they ended up making it a series. You know, *Linux Hill* is like a neighborhood hospital, and all of these—I mean, they do incredible brain surgery and stuff there. But it's also like it's known for brain surgery and like. Uh, delivering babies, basically.
2: And people getting run over by the subway. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And, like, anybody walks in off the street there and they have all of these different political opinions. They have all these different mental health crises. You know, I mean, they're dealing with just such a range of things. And these doctors welcome them in and love them and accept them and offer them hope and healing. And they weep when they die. And, like... For me, it's, su- it's been such a portrait of, of not just ministry, but also like the Christian life.
0: Wow. Um, so it's, anyway. That's, just, that's, that's beautiful. I love it. It's a documentary series. It's not like a Grey's Anatomy. Yes.
1: Man. Yeah, it's documentary. It's just fabulous. You
0: want to say, you know, people always, uh, you know, trot out that old chestnut about, you know, preachers should preach with the Bible in one hand and newspaper in the other. And we're at a point in... Time where it's like, well, what newspaper, <laughs> you know? Uh, because right. I think you're yeah. gonna just and yeah. And my my older brother. So
1: that's like one. Like I would just love to make a list of things that
0: Jesus didn't
1: say. Did not do say you know that. I mean? Like people, I'm, like, I'm just like, no one said that. Like, why are you? In no, in
0: no anyway. sense do you not want to connect with the cares and concerns of people. Yes, uh, but yeah, because Sarah, you're right. Yeah, I, I, my my brother said by the way the same thing. I was trying to preach after the um, riots and. um he said, basically, it's a, my brother said, it's basically impossible to preach a sermon right now. Mm. And mm. I, I felt that, and the Holy Spirit, I think, guided me through somewhat, and I, I s- said what I felt I could say, and without trying to you know co-opt any voices or something, but it was one of these situations where, afterward, I was like, what, was I doing... Was I doing that because I thought that's what God wanted people to hear, or was I doing that because I wanted to get pats on the back and say you're so you're courageous, Dave, or you yeah. I'm so glad you said something because yes. that's what you know you haven't actually preached a sermon when people walk out and they're like good for you for for bolstering yeah. my good, sense of how good I am yes. and but you know you have I feel preached so a sermon
1: just right now thank you <laughs>
0: you know you have preached a sermon when someone walks out and be like how did, you were in my bedroom last night how did you know about yeah. what the pain I'm feeling and I know that there's not there's not a formula because it's just it's it's the active I
1: mean there's not but there is like there's not but there is because I think I told Dave I my last time when I preached I totally struggle with the same thing you're saying and I but I think I don't struggle with that when I preach forgiveness i don't i'm just like i don't struggle with that when i preach forgiveness you know and but it's not because we're, an in, easy we're in, thing in a moment right now where people
2: don't want to talk about forgiveness
0: someone very dear to to the organization was asking me as well is mockingbird gonna make a statement or do something like this and i'd already been too jaded about all the statements coming from you know like my my toothpaste manufacturer to be like why right. do really step into that space <laughs> but i i wanted to say like well our chief insight from twelve years is to really talk about God's grace, and yeah. I feel like it's a little soon to be um, to be trumpeting that at least as it reg- as in regard to uh, the issue of race and and yeah. also for it might be time for us to sometimes keep our thoughts to ourselves a little bit about this and wait yeah. but that's why it's so heartening when you see someone like Esau Macaulay who's an Anglican priest uh, in America, a black guy um, wrote in the New York Times magazine what the Bible has to say about black anger. This came out on June 14th and it's worth reading to you as our final piece. He says the miracle of the Bible is not that it records the rage of the oppressed. The miracle is that it has more to say. The same text that includes a call for vengeance upon Israel's enemies, look to the salvation of its oppressors. Isaiah 49 says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. For Christians, rage, like Psalm 137, must eventually give way to hope. And we find the spiritual resources to make this transition at the cross. Jesus could have called down the psalms of rage upon his enemies and shouted a final word of defiance before he breathed his last. Instead, he called for forgiveness. It was not a false reconciliation. Jesus experienced the reality of state-sponsored terror. That is why the black Christian has always felt a particular kinship with this crucified king from an oppressed ethnic group. The cross helps us make sense of the lynching tree. And Jesus' resurrection three days after his crucifixion shows that neither the lynching tree nor the cross have the final say about those whom God values. The state thought that violence could stop God's purposes. For the Christian, the resurrection makes clear the futility of the attempt. Further, Jesus' profound act of forgiving his opponents provides me with the theological resources to hope. Dare we speak of hope when chants of I can't breathe echo in the streets? Do we risk the criticism commonly levied at Christians that we move too quickly to hope because faith pacifies? Resurrection hope, Macaulay writes, doesn't remove the Christian from the struggle for justice. It empties the state's greatest weapon, the fear of death, of its power. Hope is possible if we recognize that it does not rule out justice. It is what separates justice, though, from vengeance. Howard Thurman wrote in his classic work, Jesus and the Disinherited, about how rage, once unleashed, tends to spill out beyond its intended target and consume everything. The hatred of our enemy that we take to the streets returns with us to our friendships, marriages, and communities. It damages our own souls." Talk about a reason for hope. Esau <laughs> McCauley has since been asked to become a contributing uh, write- columnist to the New York Times, which is just...
1: I saw that. It's <laughs> uh, bonkers really to me. Cool. So,
0: and If you're listening, we, we salute you and we pray for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> we salute you. <laughs> I thought that was great because I do feel enormous fear in my own being to say what I feel to, to, to mention the gospel Uh, as, as a, as a white man, I feel I have no authority to do so. And I'm afraid probably for good reasons, but also for just insecure reasons that I'm going to say the wrong thing and that it, that that thing where he says he's levied at Christians who are you know remember when they got so mad some uh, you, predominant some some activists got so mad at the women at the A.M.E. church in Charleston for forgiving yeah. Dylan Roof, and I thought that yeah. you know I w- I'm with Dolly Parton that forgiveness is all there is, all there is, and yet maybe uh, it's not mine to invoke, but he saw uh, Macaulay or at least a point to Jesus because if all we have to offer the world is vengeance or payback uh, or a switching of the the power if the the, um, the the hats again, um, and a cycle of violence rather than the, the the Christ who who broke that that cycle and suffered um, for actual sinners. I mean, I, I don't know what else. I don't have anything else to offer. You know, as a, as a, I have garbage pail kids and Weird Al, basically. That's
2: that's it. This piece reminded me of a sermon um, that my first boss in ministry gave once, Doctor John Westfall, who's a Presbyterian and just a great. Love him so much, such a, a grace preacher, someone who understands humanity, um, who loves the Lord, who who preaches um, the gospel. But he was talking once about kind of praying for our enemies, and he he used some of the same psalms text that Esau used in this um, this piece about you know praying for the destruction of your enemies. Basically, you know let their let their infants be cast upon the rocks and let them, you know. And, and uh, what did he say? He said, "Yeah, Jesus said to pray for your enemies." But he said, you know, um, those don't always have to be the best prayers. You know, sometimes, you know, if, if you're feeling angry, if you're, it, it's it's okay um, to pre to preach to pray destruction upon your enemies and to leave it in God's hands, right? Because what does Paul say in Romans? He says, A beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of the Lord. For vengeance is mine; I will repay. You know, no, be 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 kind to your enemies, and so you will heap burning coals upon their heads." Um, I've never forgotten that. I remember my wife and I were on the West Side Highway once in New York City with like, I think one or both of our small children in our backseat. And um, this car was just driving like 90 miles an hour weaving through traffic on the West Side Highway in a really reckless manner. And my wife sort of really quickly, she's like, Lord, I pray that that person gets into a non-life-threatening car accident and is chastened. And then we keep on driving two miles up the road. There's the guy. He's running to like the uh, the side of the highway. Um, the front of his car is 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 banged up, but he's standing there, like by the side of his car, door open, scratching his head a little bit. And we're like, "Oh no!" It was pretty crazy. It was like I felt like our prayer got answered in uh, in real time. Um, but I I don't know, man. I so I do think there's room for praying against. People that you your enemies that are having a tough time and, and leaving leaving vengeance in God's hands and it might be in that process that God changes your heart towards those with whom you have conflict. But I think if you have the choice between um, kind of bringing that anger, that frustration, that that to God's feet and leaving it there and walking away, versus uh, just stewing on it or um, enacting it yourself or I think that's not the worst thing in the world. And there certainly is plenty of precedence, as Esau says, in the Psalms for, um, you know, praying hard prayers against uh, against your enemies. Is that too much?
1: No, no I mean, I don't know. I, I was thinking, it's so funny, like I was reading this and I, because obviously I'm a white woman in 2020 and, you know, really don't deal with, especially out in wider culture with much like oppression. Um, But I do deal with it in the church and uh, just the wider church. It's, you know, people are still not used to women in leadership. And I was thinking about um, the guy who told Beth Moore to go home about John MacArthur. And, um, you know, we talked about that a lot on here and was just thinking about how hurtful that was when he talked Mm -hmm. about women not being in ministry and, You know, there was just these massive responses and then how angry I felt with him initially. And then I don't know how um, I always say this. I have probably said it too much, but I just always think about how people wake up in the morning like. And that, for some reason, gives me a sense of mercy and grace for them. Like, I think about what it must be like to wake up with that much anger in your heart and that much, like, self-righteousness and that, like, lack of humility that you feel like you're. it's necessary for you to, to say really hurtful stuff about entire groups of people. Um, and so I actually... F- find some peace there in my Christian faith. And I love what Esau says in here that like people will just write that off as kind of a passive, you know, kind of nature. And that's, I'm also okay with that. I'm okay with being written off as a Christian (laughs) only because my life's blood is fury and, Anger and and I and I come from that, you know. I mean, I come from stories of you know, I just come from these really strong women who have fought so hard, literally, to stay alive. Right? That's our family narrative in so many ways, and kind of against all odds. And so, I come by, um, uh, really sort of a murderous rage very (laughs) (laughs) easily. And for me, Christianity and the gospel specifically has shifted that in a way that even I find jarring within myself. Like, I don't know why I'm not on social media right now. Like, I can't explain that, right? And so... Um, there are these things that god gives me i feel like and one of them is like whenever i'm whenever i feel like somebody really is against me or has oppressed me or hurt me i just think like oh my god what does he wake up like in the morning does he wake up this mad you know like that's a horrible Mm. and it's like what esau says actually which i really love um when he's um he's quoting the the book um uh, the oppressed isaiah isaiah yeah, th- this uh, this idea of like that that actually like living with that level of rage, how it impacts your family and your work and your you know and like Christianity, the cross is like my release valve. Like it's like the place I can go to where I'm like that actually doesn't have to be my identity. And that doesn't mean that rage doesn't exist and isn't a thing that we all navigate and it doesn't mean that rage isn't justified right but it's it's like I can't stay in that and survive right um I can't I mean I think you know as much as I talk about the women in my family like we all always I mean as long as we're all agreement dinosaurs existed you know when we think about our paleolithic selves and we think about this desperate need to have enough food to have a place to live to keep our children you know that's That's the same kind of rage on some level, right? Fear keeps you alive. We can't stay. I mean, you can (laughs) stay there, but when you, yeah, when you stay there, you end up like crowdsourcing hobbies on social media because you're so desperate for an escape, right? We can't stay in that place.
0: And that, but there, but this is why. what he, what he wrote has an actually prophetic edge to it in the in the proper sense yeah. of that he's saying that there's more than rage. Uh, I remember Alan Jacobs wrote something uh, a few years ago um, that is something I tried to really capture in Seculosity. He said, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic but far more so because it retains an inchoate sense of justice but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serve as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. And what... uh, Macaulay, to my ears, is advocating for is something that's not a mania for punishment, which is where the we seem to be stuck in right now, or perhaps it's too soon to even begin to talk about, uh, what Macaulay's writing about, but I'm I'm glad he did, uh, because I'd be way too afraid to, but, um, there is hope and there's hope for us. You know, by the way, I think if people do want resources to, uh, you know, watch Lennox Hill, uh, from this episode, watch Atlanta, the, the, uh, the, and what the, and then read Jacob's book, How to Think, because I mean, I'm not a, the biggest fan of its title, but I think that it's as far as a guidebook of how to negotiate tribalism and factionalism and rage and online this and just convert just surviving uh, it is a it's a very very uh, beautiful handbook and it's very short and easy to read.
2: You had me at short and easy to read <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it's, it's, an, it's a great to be back with the two of you. We'll continue this as regularly <laughs> yeah. as we can throughout the summer. Uh, so I'm not going to commit to every week, but we'll, uh, we're going to catch as catch can, and I, I can't wait to talk to you guys again soon.
2: Good to be with you guys. Bye. Bye,
1: friends.
0: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at infombird.com. At Audio production for the mocking cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the
2: Lord.